Life is hard. Life is hard. Talk to anyone, especially over the age of 45, and they will tell you just that. Irregardless of how much financial success you do or don't have, virtually everyone over the age of 45 will tell you that life is hard. Some of you below the age of 45 would say that. Loved ones die. Loved ones disappoint you. No matter what generation you live in, the world is spinning out of control. And no matter how many vacations you take, life seems to speed by and you can't seem to control most of it, if not all of it. It's not hard to feel disappointed by many. Life rarely seems to work out as we expect. And even when it does, it doesn't satisfy us like they told us it would. Life is hard. Which is why I think the story of George Bailey affects so many. I love the movie It's a Wonderful Life, one of my favorite movies. And I think his story, I think, resonates with us for so many. For for those of you that don't know George Bailey, he's the main character of the, I'm not sure why it's a Christmas movie, but nevertheless, it's a Christmas movie. Uh, George Bailey is raised in this tiny little town called Bedford Falls. He spends most of his life growing up wanting to get out of this tiny little town and see the world and really do life. But circumstances happen such to where George can't ever leave that tiny little town of Bedford Falls. Meanwhile, all of his friends or many of his friends do leave and they kind of live it up. They live the life that he wanted to lead. And yet life hits him in the face, George in the face, so many times that at his lowest point, he runs to a bridge and stares over the water. As the snow falls around him, he says to himself, I wish I'd never been born at all. And this morning, friends, we come to Elijah's breaking point that is somewhat similar. Although he doesn't stand on a bridge on a snowy day, wishing he'd never been born at all. Instead, Elijah finds himself alone in the wilderness, asking the Lord to take his life. And what happens next is as powerful for Elijah as it was for George Bailey. More so, obviously. Big idea this morning is the Lord is king. The Lord is king. Now, some of you are going, Nathan, hasn't been that been your big idea for the last three weeks? Yes, it is. That's what the author is doing. It's exactly the one simple point that he means to communicate to us. That through all the ups and especially the downs of life, we are tempted to believe that there are some that are more powerful than the God of the Bible. But the Lord stares at us through the pages of the book of Kings and he whispers, I am king and no authority rules over me. Don't forget that. I'm working. Trust me. The Lord is king. That's what we'll see. Just a bit of a review before we jump in here to chapter 19. And again, we'll take this break for about a month from this book. Remember last week we had the, the, the pay-per-view event of the century last week, that bout between Israel and, well, actually Israel's God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and Baal. Um, Israel seems to be adopting the God of Baal all around them. The Lord, though, sends Elijah up on Mount Carmel to reveal that he alone is God and that all other gods, including Baal, are silent, that they're useless, that they're dead. We remember last week that Elijah challenges the 450 prophets of Baal. And not only does Elijah and his God win, win as evidenced by the Lord sending fire upon that sacrifice, but Elijah, a prophet of the Lord, wins by bringing judgment on all those false prophets of Baal. 
Which then after that, if you recall, the rain then begins to come, which it had not been raining for the last three and a half years. And so if Elijah had a mountaintop life-defining victory, that was it, right? And yeah, take a look at what happens right after that. <clears throat> and remember, before I read this passage, remember Ahab is the king of Israel. Remember the, the nation of Israel is split. They would have ten tribes in the two. This is the ten. Israel would be referred to as ten. The ten tribes, they're called the tribe of, or the, the uh, nation of Israel. And this king is Ahab. Ahab is brazenly married, a Baal-worshipping woman by the name of Jezebel. And this woman, Jezebel, she is all about some false worship. She follows Baal. That leads us to 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. She's referencing there, that the passage is referencing what just happened on Mount Carmel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Let's pause there for a moment. This is a surprising turn of events, isn't it? Elijah goes from the literal and figurative mountaintop to the metaphorical valley. It was just days ago that he stood courageously in the face of all of Israel and Ahab and the prophets of Baal, and he called down fire. And yet with but a single threat from Queen Jezebel, he's hightailing it out of town, out of fear. And we ask the question, don't we? How does this happen in Elijah? Well, based upon what comes next, it seems as though Elijah had an expectation that this seeming defeat and revival that broke out on Mount Carmel, he thought that it would stay. But he now realizes in this threat that that kind of revival was in many ways fake. It wasn't going to last as he thought. And he feels all is lost. That becomes more apparent as we read on. Take a look at verse 4. But he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. So we'd given a servant aside. He himself goes by himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for this journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So there in verse 4, we read of Elijah's kind of George Bailey moment standing on the bridge in utter despair. He asked, you'll notice, that he might die. Notice he doesn't take his life into his own hands, but he asked the Lord to take his life. He says, I'm no better than his, than my father's, meaning, meaning I'm just as good as dead, is what he's saying there. He seems to have assumed that Jezebel's power would win the day. And he was tired of fighting. So he lays down to sleep. He's done. He's over, as it were. And it is at this point that we get this tender testimony of not just any angel, but notice the angel of the Lord shows up to minister to Elijah. 
He'd already been ministered to, Elijah had, by the Lord himself when the Lord directed the ravens to feed him previously. But now the angel of the Lord himself has shown up to feed Elijah in this moment of despair. We have some questions about this angel of the Lord. Who exactly is he? Well, he is a wonderfully mysterious figure in the Old Testament. When reading the Bible, it's important to note the difference between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. And here you'll notice we have the angel of the Lord. And we see this uh, angel of the Lord. We know that this angel is often referred to as God himself. We see this, for instance, back when uh, the angel of the Lord met with Moses in the burning bush. That's the same figure here. And some believe this angel of the Lord to be the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. And this idea is strengthened when we consider the reality that after the coming of Christ in the incarnation, we don't see this angel of the Lord show up anymore. But regardless, in some significant way, Elijah is being ministered to by the Lord himself numerous times amidst his despair. And then strengthened by the rest and the food that he gets, uh, Elijah makes his way to Horeb, the Mount of God. And there's two interesting points about that. Right? Two interesting points about his going to, El- to the Mount Horeb. First, when Elijah kind of pieces out and leaves Jezreel and heads to Beersheba, verse 3, if we were looking at a map, we would see the distance or the way from uh, where he was at Mount Carmel to Beersheba, to Mount Horeb, we would see that it's a direct route. So it seems as though Elijah is not just running aimlessly. He seems to know exactly where he's going. He seems to intentionally be running towards Mount Horeb, which leads to the second point about this. Mount Horeb, you may know, has a second name, another name by which you might know it. Mount Sinai, same mountain, Mount Sinai. And what, of course, happened on Sinai, right? That, of course, is where the Lord met with Moses in the burning bush and commissioned Moses to lead his people out of slavery. Same mountain, same place. And that is also where Moses met with the Lord face to face and gave him the law. And many of you remember from two weeks ago when I uh, showed the numerous ways that the author of Kings is casting Elijah in the shadow of Moses. And if you remember a significant aspect of that, was how things appeared as though at that at this time in Elijah's life, in this time in the nation of Israel, if you recall, we remember at this time, it seems as though things have transgressed in such a way as to seem as though the Lord hadn't done anything at all. Remember how Baal, remember he built a temple to Baal in the land? Remember how we saw that Jericho was rebuilt? Remember how we saw from chapter 14, verse 24, that all of the worship in Israel was just like it was before the Israelites came in. Thus the need for a kind of second Moses. And that's the ministry of Elijah, the prophet. He's a kind of second Moses that is meant to prepare the people for another kind of deliverance. A greater salvation. And that is exactly how the prophet Malachi, years after Elijah's death, It's exactly how uh, the prophet Malachi, years after Elijah, would see this other Elijah figure that was going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And that that Elijah figure, of course, again, as we considered last week, was John the baptizer. He was the one that was that other Elijah uh, that would then prepare the way for the Lord Jesus, that would then bring about a full salvation. But back into our story here. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Elijah would meet with God on a mountain in the same way that Moses did. 
And here you see that. Elijah, like Moses, is also in the wilderness. And Moses, of course, was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Here we see Elijah is wandering for 40 days. And it seems as though, again, Elijah has consciously gone not just to any mountain, but he's gone to the mountain of God, to Horeb, to Sinai, the same mountain again that Moses met with God. And Elijah has a similar experience with the Lord as Moses did. But I just, if you, if you kind of got lost in all that little explanation of those two parallels, the most important thing to remember right here is, is that we need to understand at this point, Elijah is not aimless amidst his despair. The Lord is following Elijah. The Lord is feeding Elijah. He's at work amidst his people while his people are rebelling against him. Even as Elijah is fearful, he's at work. And the way that he's working is evidently by showing us that the ministry of Elijah is to kind of start us over again. To bring us all the way back to the beginning before they went into the land. That seems to be what the author's wanting to tell us. Back into Exodus, we almost are at. Well, that leads us to verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And before, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Friends, again, just as Moses was in a cave, so Elijah is in a cave on the Mount of God. But remember, beloved, to always pay attention to repetition. Right. Pay attention to repetition. When we see repetition in the text of Scripture, it's there for emphasis. It's there to kind of clue us in as to what's going on in the passage. And we have two things repeated in this passage. First of all, the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then second of all, the answer is repeated the same way both times. And as to the question of what are you doing here, Elijah, just like when the Lord asked Adam, where are you? It's not as though the Lord didn't know the answer. The Lord knew where Elijah was. But Elijah didn't know where the Lord was. The Lord knew why Elijah was there. But Elijah doesn't seem to know why he was there. He didn't understand what was going on. We see that in Elijah's response. Notice again, as we saw last week, we see first off that Elijah believes in a specific God. Right. Notice again, we see that Elijah does not believe in some nebulous, abstract, spiritual, but not religious kind of God. He believes in 
Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of hosts. But in his answer as to what is he doing there, he says, I've been very jealous for you, Lord. And yet, as he's been very jealous for the Lord, he's done this work. And yet the people have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And you notice all those emphasis on the word your. They've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They killed your prophets. And even I and I only am left. And if that's not enough, they're after, after me and about to take my life. That's his answer. Now, Elijah should have known about those 100 prophets. Remember, we thought about that last week. He should have known about those 100 prophets that Obadiah had hidden, kept. Uh, Elijah should have known that some that responded on Mount Carmel, that God is the Lord, the Lord is God. He should have known at least some of those would persevere. But oftentimes in our own despair, we don't see things clearly, do we? And that's the exact problem Elijah has. This is the heart of the passage, guys. Don't miss this. Here's the heart of the passage. Elijah has reasoned himself into believing that Yahwehism, or for our purposes, Christianity as it were, is done. That's what he's thought. He's reasoned himself into thinking that it's all over. That Christianity as it were, lost. Right when he thought that the Lord was stronger on Mount Carmel, he'd begun to believe that the false gods had won. On that day in Mount Horeb. And no matter all the hard work he'd done to kind of raise up this revival. To raise up an affection for the Lord. They just didn't care. And now he was the only one left that actually wanted to follow the Lord. And soon enough they'd kill him. The worship of God was over as it were. Christianity had lost. That was his thinking. Friends, Elijah had begun to believe a lie. A lie that we're all tempted to believe ourselves. That all of his ministry was for naught. That the false gods had won. That he really was on the wrong side of history. And he alone was left. Again, his George Bailey kind of on the bridge moment continued in despair. And friends, I've sat with pastors that have had similar moments. They graduated from seminary with zealousness for God. Looking forward to all these wonderful things that they wanted to minister the word to God's people and to share the gospel. Wanted to plant churches. Wanted to resurrect churches that were kind of dying and the like. Only to have those same men go into those churches and be chewed up and spit out by the people there. I've talked to pastors that have sought to plant churches. They listen to so-called church planning strategists that told them about all this need and how it's going to go great. And they go in there and they move their family there and they raise this money and nobody really responds to the gospel. And three, four years go by and they have to move somewhere else. And they're discouraged. And while they didn't think they were the only one left really doing ministry, those people, those pastors did learn that while trying to follow the Lord, like really follow Him, try to be serious as, as, as serious as God is about Himself, they learned that not too many people really want to do that. As much as many people just wanted to kind of use God like an accessory to their lives instead of the substance of their lives. And I know some of you have been there yourselves. You've evangelized a family friend or a neighbor for years, prayed for them. He gave them books to read. He invited them over and nothing's happened. You've prayed for them and nothing's happened. Or maybe you tried to start a Bible study and nobody showed up. I can remember being on a baseball team and asking to start a Bible study and the entire team on the bus just laughing at me. 
And maybe some would show up to your Bible study. You tried. You really made an effort. But they didn't really pray. They didn't really read in advance. They weren't prepared. Or maybe some of you have been doing children's ministry in this church. A lot of you have been doing children's ministry in this church for years. Maybe you tried to meet up with other men and women for times of prayer and meditation and memorization and walks. And you look back and wonder, is anything happening? I mean, is, is any change? People actually changing? You're discouraged like Elijah. And again, you're not saying that you're the only one left as he did, but you kind of feel that way. I've been there. I've felt that way. I've shared with the elders on numerous occasions where I've just wondered, is anything happening in our church? I can remember back in 2016, I remember that year where I prayed, Lord, I asked that Lord would save 16 people through the direct ministry of this church. And that was the first year in our church plant that I don't, we didn't know of anybody that came to faith that year. There's been plenty of times when I've met with people and counseled marriages and read books with other people and tried to evangelize my friends and neighbors. I've tried to preach the best sermons I could and months go by and it didn't seem like really anything was happening. Meanwhile, the God of this world seemed to be marching on in the hearts of those around me. I see it on the news. I see it in my relationships. This kind of individualistic, anti-institutional God that seems to mirror whatever the spirit of the age is, that God seems to be advancing, seems to be winning. Again, friends, this is why I think that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is so popular. We've all been there. We've all been on that bridge with George Bailey. And if you haven't yet, you will be. You will give yourself to the hard work of pursuing Christ and pursuing others and the love of Christ. You'll give yourself to making disciples and you'll wake up one day feeling like you're the only one that really cares. Which then leads you to wonder if anything is happening. And you want to give up or at least maybe you want to kind of scale your Christianity back such that it doesn't make as many demands upon you to love others. And you kind of turn your Christianity into kind of your own individualistic Christianity that you don't really have to do much kind of safeguards things. Guys, I get it. I've been there. I know that feeling. Elijah seems to get it. And so we ask the question, well, what do we do? What does, in particular, how does the Lord speak into that kind of feeling when it seems as though nothing is going on, when it seems as though Christianity, as it were, is losing and we don't seem to be having much of an effect? What does the Lord say in those moments? What would he have us to see? We'll take a look again at the passage. We recall here that the Lord passes by Elijah. But he isn't in the stone-tearing wind. We can imagine. (laughs) Breaking up stones. Not in the wind. He isn't in the earth-shattering quake. He's not in it. He isn't even in the fire. Which, by the way, he was a few days ago at Mount Carmel. He's not in the fire. So where is he? Where is the Lord? He's found in the whisper. Elijah's despair had come from thinking that he was on the losing side. Again, that he was on that wrong side of history. Elijah had begun looking in the wrong places. His evaluations were not the same as the Lord's. He thought, as we all do, That power, that the might, the success of his faith and his God would be measured like the world measured things. But friends, the Lord 
doesn't work that way. He never really has. Just as the Lord said to Samuel a generation before when choosing the next king from David's son, David, 1 Samuel, Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. but The Lord looks on the heart. He looks on the inside. He looks on the hidden. Not the way the man looks on the outside, on the spectacular. See, Elijah thought Baalism had won in the end. He thought the Lord wasn't actually the Lord in some sense. He thought all of his ministry was for nothing. And now he was going to be killed by those that opposed God. But he only thought that because he looked at the outward appearance of powerful winds, earthquakes, and fires. And beloved, the the Lord was teaching Elijah, and he's teaching us this morning, that his power, his might, his glory, his kingdom, his purposes in the world often don't come that way. They come in the way of the whisper. They come in the way of the quiet, the small, the otherwise insignificant places and people of the world. That's how the Lord shows his strength. Through weakness. Friends, the Lord's plans were not being thwarted in this time. Everything was happening just as he ordained it. Because he's the Lord. He's king, not man. Not any other God of any other making. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord of hosts. The God of the Christian faith as believed by institutional Christianity. He was marching on. When everything else in the world would seem to otherwise appear as though they were losing. God was marching on. Had it been at this time, at this period of time, it was not as though that Yahwehism, or again, we might say Christianity, it wasn't being covered by the New York Times. It wasn't being covered by Fox News, Instagram, or Hollywood. And God does it that way so as to show his strength. See, friends, other agendas, you name them, whatever or whoever they are, you name it. If they are opposed to the clear revelation of Christ, they need those bully pulpits. They need them. They need the wind. They need the earthquakes. They need the fires in order to advance their agendas. The Lord doesn't need any of those. We that are in Christ don't need those bully pulpits. The flashy, the wind, the earthquake, the fire. Because we believe in a God that is stronger than man. Stronger than Satan. Stronger than the power structures of this world. God is happy to advance on the backs of no-name prophets. Who bring about kingdom purposes and places like Nigeria just as much if not more than New York City. Who works in places like Ho Chi Minh just as much if not more than places like Hollywood. In places, yes, where the Lord is working in places like London and Beijing for sure. But also in Lizard Lick, North Carolina and Bell Buckle, Tennessee. The people in those cities and the purpose of God in those cities are just as important to him as any other. Because the Lord advances by the whisper, not by the spectacular, oftentimes. Out of sight from the world. We see that this is the purpose of the events here on Mount Horeb because of what the Lord tells Elijah next. Take a look at verses 15 to 18. We see how he shows his power amidst Elijah thinking he's the only one left. That kind of Christianity, as it were, is kind of lost The Lord shows that he's really in charge because, as he tells him in verses 15 to 18, he tells Elijah to to go and to anoint two kings, one in Syria and the other Ahab's successor in Israel. 
And then thirdly, you'll notice that he calls him to go and anoint Elijah's successor, Elisha. And so with these three PowerPoints, the Lord will bring about his judgments. And the Lord makes very clear to Elijah that while there are sadly few true followers of the Lord, he, in fact, is not the only one left. Look at verse 18. He says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Beloved, it is not the kings of the earth who are in charge. Since the Lord is the one that will anoint them and bring them into power. The Lord is going to use this prophet from a no-name town. He will be the one. When everybody else thinks he's lost, he will be the one to anoint those new leaders. And Elijah and his ministry are not at an end. He's not the only one. In fact, what we find here is that, as we know later, he will anoint another one, a prophet in successor to him named Elisha, that will do double the amount of Elijah. The Lord is king. No matter how many times we see this, no matter how many times that we might uh, think that things appear like to the eyes of the world that he's not winning, his purposes advance. Again, oftentimes unseen by the world because the way of God is the way of whisper. It's not the wind, not the earthquake, not the fire oftentimes. In fact, we find this final story there in verses 19 to 21. It tells of how Elijah goes and then appoints Elisha, at least sort of. The author places this story, if you're wondering, what is this story doing here? The author places this story here in order to help us see that no matter what the appearances of things are, God is worthy to lay everything down in order to follow. No matter what it may appear like things are going on in the world, God is worth laying everything aside to follow. So we see there when Elijah comes upon Elisha, he finds Elisha plowing in the field with 12 oaks of yokes of oxen. Twelve, of course, is a significant number in the Bible. But again, the most significant piece of this story there at the end in verses 19 to 22 is seen there in Elisha saying goodbye to his parents, then killing all of his 12 yoke of oxen, boiling them, and then distributing the food to his people. Think about that, guys, what is happening here. Elijah, Elisha, is saying bye to his family, and he's burning and destroying and then feasting upon his livelihood. Guys, this is, this is Elisha doing what Jesus would go on to tell the rich young ruler to do. Sell it all. Come follow me. And he wouldn't do it. Well, Elisha did it. This is the equivalent of what Peter did when Jesus said to Peter, get out of your, put the fishing business down, come and follow me. And he did. Friends, the author wants us to see that no matter appearances, the Lord's power is made perfect through weakness. His purposes march on no matter what other gods may be thought to be in control. Which leads me to three brief applications for us. I'm going to give you one reminder, one warning, and one encouragement from this passage. One reminder, one warning, one encouragement. Here's the reminder. You already know this one. I've said it a lot. The Lord is king. One reminder, the Lord is king. Now, I've already talked about this, but I want to remind you all that all authority, as Jesus says, is his in heaven and on earth. It's in the hands of the Lord. All authority is his. As Christians, we do not measure success by earthly power or wealth. We do not look to polls to determine who or what is winning. We do not look to size or speed or earthly strength in order to see where the Lord is at work. We do not look at the outward appearance of man, for the Lord does not see as man does. 
He looks upon the heart. He looks upon different. He sees differently. He acts differently than the world. So must, so must we if we are not going to be in despair. We have to learn to see as he does and stop evaluating things as Elijah did on the world. as the way the world does. The Lord passed by Elijah but was not in the spectacular. He was in the whisper. Look for the Lord in the whisper. Listen for him. The quiet. The small and the otherwise insignificant ways. I love to read John Newton's letters. There's a beautiful letter where John Newton waxes eloquent. He said, if we were to go and look for the strongest Christian in all the world, he says, we would most certainly not find him in a pulpit. But instead, we would find an old woman. We find an old woman in a mud-walled college, an old woman at her wheel. The Lord is king. He doesn't need the bully pulpits of the world. He operates in the whisper amongst the unseen places, the ways in which the world doesn't evaluate. And of course, how can this not be even more evident in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, born of a virgin Mary, no name, otherwise no name uh, woman by the name of Mary in the, eventually we'd grow up in a little tiny town of Nazareth. We'll celebrate this, this Christmas season about the insignificance with which Jesus came about. And of course it was Christ hanging on the execution device of a cross. And as he hung on that cross, he delivered the death blow to sin, Satan, and death. And as Jesus hung on that cross, seemingly losing in the eyes of the world, they made fun of him, laughed at him, assuming that he'd lost, that there in his execution, in his weakness, there in his death, he had lost. If you're a king, save yourself, they said. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, the criminal said. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Some king you are, Jesus. Friends, it was the darkest, it was in the darkest moments of Christ's life that he was winning the most. For on the cross, the sins of those that repent and believe. Those sins were crucified. Our sins that believe were crucified. Paid in full right there on the cross. And the resurrection three days later proved that to be the case. Which meant that as Christ was evidently losing in the eyes of the world, he was winning in the eyes of heaven. Would all seem lost, he had all things in his hands. Jesus, beloved, rules not with a crown of diamonds, but with a crown of thorns. The symbol of the Christian faith is an instrument of torture and death. We, beloved, conquer by the cross. We preach Christ crucified. That's our message. That's all we have. We don't conquer by Congress. We aren't victorious by vacations. We aren't successful by earthly status. We aren't triumphant by talent. We conquer in Christ, who was hated by the world, who was countercultural and yet comfortable to live among the riffraff of the world and advance his kingdom on their backs. It was among them, among the poor, the weak, the disenfranchised, the kingdom advances. The ones that the world doesn't really regard, flyover kinds of people. To be sure, the kingdom advances among the popular, among the elites as well. We see that also in Scripture. But Jesus teaches us that for them, for those elites, for those kind of more wealthy, those kind of cultural, powerful kind of folks, Jesus teaches us openly that it's hard for them. Because they're so tethered to this world. We see that in the rich young ruler. 
But we understand as Christians, we long for a better world than this one. We long for a better city than this broken down, but still beautiful city. Indeed, friends, don't forget, no matter how bad things get in your personal life and our corporate life together or in the world, listen to that. No matter how bad things get in your personal life, in our corporate life together or in the world, no matter how bad they are, the Lord is king and nothing can stop him. And he is especially working. We can be sure in those times when all seems lost, we can be confident, especially in those times that he's at work. He appoints leaders and takes them down. Again, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. One reminder, the Lord is king. One warning, one warning. Be aware of the persuasiveness of the gods around you. Be aware of the persuasiveness of the gods around you. Let's remember the storyline here, guys. Remember the storyline of our passage. It's less than 100 years from the rise of King David. It's less than 60 years from Solomon's golden age. Less than 60. And now Israel is no better than the people that were in the land before the conquest. Again, the passage seems to be teaching us it's as though it didn't even happen. It happens. It got so bad so fast. Israel was supposed to go in and wipe out the worship of Baal as an instrument of God's judgment. But instead, what did Israel do but compromise? And instead of being conformed to the God that loved them and provided for them, that won their victories, they wound up conforming to the patterns of the world around them. They conformed to the patterns of the God around them. They compromised. At some level, I'm sure that when Israel went in there into the land, they thought that they would be tempted. But they thought, yeah, I'll, I'll remain faithful. It'll be fine. And it only took a few decades before they were literally killing their children out of love to another God. Now they are less than 10,000 that believe in Israel. And now their greatest prophet is dejected, despised, rejected. That's where we are in a few decades. The Lord warned them. Moses warned them before they went in, but they wouldn't listen. Friends, slowly they began to take on lifestyles of the people around them. I can recall a, a brother in our church many years ago that was having a crisis of faith in his own life, struggling with some doubt. He'd grown up in a Christian home and he had a brother that also had obviously grown up in that home. But his brother was an unbeliever, not a Christian, kind of a relativist, kind of believed whatever. And this Christian brother, I was walking with him. He told me the story. He was struggling with this crisis of doubt and he shared with his brother, his unbelieving brother, about his doubts that he was wrestling with. And his brother said back to him, brother, the only reason you believe that is because you grew up in a Christian home. And this doubting Christian brother said back to his unbelieving brother, well, the only reason you believe that is because you live in a city of relativism. In other words, this unbelieving friend didn't notice that he himself had conformed to the patterns of the world around him. Friends, it's no surprise that church buildings are largely in, are largely empty in industrialized urban settings, while at the same time, all the people around those church buildings in those urban industrialized cities vote the same way, wave the same flags, and doubt the same things. That, friend, is not thinking for yourself any more than it is to be living in the rural south, believing everything the Bible has said to be true when you actually haven't taken the time to see if everything the Bible said is true. 
We've got to learn to be more savvy, to learn to be more careful to who we listen to, who we're being conformed by, where we're living, what kind of gods are around us. The Bible time and again reminds us of the power and the deception of the devil. It tells us that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the principalities. And those deceptive rulers and principalities will use Islam in Pakistan. They will use Mormonism in Utah. And yes, they will use Christless Christianity in Bell Buckle, Tennessee. And they will use secularism in Washington, D.C. In order to get you and I to conform to the pattern of the worship around us. Whatever that might be. We've got to learn from the mistakes, from the sins of Israel. Who, as we learned last week, went on limping between two different opinions about God. Every single day, you and I are being discipled. Every single day, you're being discipled by the world. All the more reason why we have to press into Christ and press into each other and listen to him. Asking ourselves, does this accord to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because that's true. I know that's true. Do we ask ourselves and work at that? Being careful to not wind up like the Israelites. Leaving our children to be raised in homes and environments. where They're just led into more confusion instead of the certainty that we have in Jesus. And to you, my unbelieving friend. Is it possible you believe what you believe? Not because you've taken the time to consider Christ. But because you've adopted the worship of the gods around you here in Washington, D.C. Isn't that possible? And likewise, to my doubting Christian brother or sister who are tempted to to give in on a certain doctrine or practice. Have you taken the time to consider the warnings that are here in Kings? Namely, that it's easy to adopt the worship of those we live around. And their mentalities and their narratives. And it's hard, as Jesus clearly and openly taught us, it's hard to walk the straight and narrow way that leads to everlasting life. Study Christ. and Be around people that will help you to do that and pray for you and love you through it. The Lord is King. We need to be warned yet again that we are being discipled by the world in every Uh, Every single day. And so may we give ourselves to learning from Elijah's mistakes of being afraid, thinking that we're losing. Let us learn to see as God does, not on outward appearances, but in the heart. Not in the spectacular, but in the whisper. Not in crowns of glory, friends, but in crowns of thorns. Finally, one encouragement. The Lord who is king cares for his people. The Lord cares for his people. The one who is the king cares for his people. Beloved, did you notice the tender care that the Lord has for Elijah throughout this narrative? Did you notice that? When Elijah runs in fear from Jezebel down to Beersheba, the Lord does not abandon him, but he chases after him and meets with him. And when the Lord meets with Elijah, he's not met with with anger, but with a meal to strengthen him for his long journey. When Elijah comes into a cave, he's not beckoned by the Lord with a shout. But instead, he's wooed by a soft whisper to come stand before the Lord. When Elijah languishes in despair, believing that all is lost, the Lord does not rebuke him, though he could have. But instead, he employs him to go and administer his rule by anointing kings and prophets. 
Do you see how tender the Lord was throughout all this? When the Lord sent his only son, he came with a heart that was said to be gentle and lowly. Friend, the Lord is king over the nations. His rule cannot be stopped. However, the worship of a false gods will be pervasive around us. Their rule will be powerful. Their rule will be seductive. It will be popular. It is and always will be hard to follow the Lord. There will be times like Elijah when we are in despair for our lives. Perhaps maybe not for the disappointment of ministry that I mentioned before, but maybe again because of the circumstances that the Lord allows in our lives, like the death of family members, the loss of careers, the disappointment of friends, even churches, pastors. But through it all, beloved, never forget when you have your own moment in Beersheba or Bedford Falls or Washington, D.C., Never forget the God that beckons you does so with a whisper, not with a shout. Never forget that he has never left you or forsaken you. He chooses to chase you down like he did Elijah, no matter how far you've run from him. Never forget that he's provided for you in countless ways. You've got to know those things. Never forget that he never stopped loving you, but instead gave his only son that you might be with him. Never forget the life he's given you. Never forget, as you heard Nick read at the top of this service, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. No matter how small or great, big or small, hard or easy, never forget that the Lord cares for his people. And remember, as you, and remember, as you remember that, remember to look for him not in the great winds, not in the earthquakes, not in the fire. Don't look for him all the time in the spectacular, but look for him in the whisper. Quiet. George Bailey eventually came to that conclusion. He began to see sort of in that way. He wasn't looking to Christ, but he began to look that way in the whisper, not the spectacular. As he saw George Bailey, as he saw what his community would have been like had he never been born at all, he learned to see that his life really did have meaning, though he thought it didn't. He learned to see that it really was important. In some ways, his life was even more important than his friends who had fame and fortune. George Bailey learned to listen for the whisper and stop looking for the spectacular. And when he did, he realized that even though his life was hard and oftentimes boring, it was a wonderful life. And so it is for all of us who are in Christ. Life is hard. But the Lord is king and he is caring for his people as the nations rage. His purposes are advancing through the whisper out of sight of the world. And soon enough we'll be at home with him. And be glad that we gave our all to him. Listen to that still small voice of the Lord. And soon enough we'll be home. Let's pray to him now. Father, forgive us for all the ways that we look and assess the world, your purposes, your kingdom. Forgive us for all the ways that we are measuring the success of Christ by the wind, by the earthquake, and by the fire. But we know that you can and have and will use those things. But so often you advance through weakness, through the whispering, so teach us to listen.
to pay attention. Let us learn from the mistakes of Israel. Let us learn from the dejection of, of Elijah himself. And through us, from a small little church like this one, to the throngs of little churches, even out in Central Asia, China, around the world, you advance your purposes out of sight of the world. Oh, give us confidence to go into the fields and hold up the glories of Christ. And when we get terrible news, thinking that you have lost, that you're not in control, that you don't have power, remind us of this story. Remind us that you whisper. You're there. Help us to hear you and follow you all of our days. We love you and we praise you for your power, your might, your glory that doesn't need the bully pulpits of the world, but instead is happy to advance upon the backs of the poor, the weak. May we be like those. Help us, God. We love you and thank you that you love us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.